You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Canada's Court. My name is Maya Shukeri. I am a CLA member and a criminal defense lawyer. My practice, Shukeri Law, is based in Ottawa, and I do criminal trials and appeals. This week's case from the Supreme Court is the case of Tanner J. Morrow versus Her Majesty the Queen. At trial, the appellant was convicted of sexual assault, attempting to obstruct justice, and breach of bail conditions which prohibited him from contacting the complainant or attending at her residence following a charge of criminal harassment. Shortly after the appellant had been charged and released in the criminal harassment file, the complainant contacted his father and asked if there was a way for her to withdraw the charges. In response, The appellant made inquiries and went to the complainant's home to tell her how to contact the Crown in order to have the charges against him dropped. While he was there, the appellant grabbed the complainant and forcibly kissed her. The appellant appealed his conviction on a number of grounds, including that the trial judge's reasons on the charge of attempting to obstruct justice were inadequate. A majority of the Court of Appeal of Alberta dismissed the appeal. It held that the trial judge's inference that the appellant had applied pressure on the complainant for an improper purpose, thereby committing the offense of attempting to obstruct justice, was available on the record. In the majority's view, the context clearly supported that inference, which is entitled to deference. Justice Slatter dissented. The appellant appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada as of right. Yes, good morning, everyone. Uh, this is the matter of Tanner J. Morrow versus uh, Her Majesty the Queen, uh, H. Markham Silver QC, and Andrea L. Serink for the appellant, and Andrew Bark for the respondent. There is a publication ban in this file pursuant to Section 486.4 of the Criminal Code. Yes, Mr. Silver, or Ms. Serink, who's ever going first. Thank you. Morning, Justice Moldaver. Good morning, Justices. This appeal as of right is predicated on the dissenting reasons of Justice Slatter in the Alberta Court of Appeal. It is submitted that the dissent of Justice Slatter raises a question of law in respect to the elements of the offense of obstructing justice. In particular, it is submitted whether on the trial record of this case, the acts of the appellant following the discussion he had had with AU, where he provided to her the requested information about the steps to advise the Crown that she wished the charges to be withdrawn, was, in fact, other corrupt means, as required by Section 139 of the Criminal Code. The standard of review it is submitted is correctness. There's certainly, based on the dissenting reasons of Justice Slatter, a disconnect between the completion of the discussion in respect to the withdrawal of charges or the provision of information of the withdrawal of charges and what happened subsequently with respect to the charge of 271. 
the trial judge makes a finding of fact that the appellant primary purpose, one of the primary purposes in respect of the breach of bail was to provide this information to AU. The trial judge does not make a finding at that point of the judgment that what the primary purpose of the appellant was in approaching AU on June 2nd was for the purpose of dissuading her from testifying. To the contrary, the evidence that was adduced at trial, and granted the record is not perfect, but the evidence that was adduced at trial clearly substantiates that the complainant had the appellant's property in the kitchen. The appellant comes to the house in response to a request by AU of the appellant's father as to how to withdraw charges and provides that information to her. The complainant testified that the appellant was at the residence for between one and a half and two hours, likely two hours. The conversation in respect to the withdrawal of charges took approximately one half of an hour from the time that the appellant entered the house. Justice Slatter makes it clear that there is a disconnect, therefore, between the discussion in respect to the withdrawal of the charges and what happened subsequently, which is the 271 allegation. The appellant submits that Justice Slatter is correct in this. And the question that he poses is, how do the findings of fact on this record relate to other corrupt means as delineated by section 139 sub three? In particular, there is no finding by the trial judge on the record that a threat was uttered to the complainant, nor was there any suggestion that a bribe had been offered to the complainant. Therefore, the uh, question that was before the trial court was whether this conduct amounted to other corrupt means. Opposite to the consideration, the Ontario Court of Appeal in Reynolds, which was affirmed by this court, um, ultimately, in Reynolds, the concept of corruption is defined at paragraph 69 of Justice Blair's dissent, which was adopted by this court. To corrupt is to induce to act dishonestly, as per the Shorter Oxford Dictionary. That is precisely the, the means the appellant was employing to dissuade Mr. Page not to testify. And I, I point that out for the following reason. In each of the cases that is cited by the Crown in support of its position, the, uh, the accused in that case, in each of those cases, was the proponent of the idea to withdraw charges or to dissuade a witness from testifying which is separate and distinct from the issue that was on the trial record of this case, which is that the complainant had already decided that she wished to advise the Crown that she no longer wished to proceed with the original charge against the appellant and made inquiries of the appellant's father as to how that could be accomplished. Granted, the appellant, contrary to the judicial order, 
requiring him to abstain from communicating with the complainant or attending at a residence, did in fact attend at a residence and provided that information. The complainant does not dispute that. And in fact says a number of times that what he does is he explains how the charge can be withdrawn. And there is no question, but that the information that was provided was in fact correct. It's apposite to note that in the court below, the Crown conceded that had the information provided to the complaint accessible is more of a comment on his significant misunderstanding regarding those affections than it is on the attempt itself. So just before you the, go on, uh, could I just ask you a question, please? Um, if you look at your friend's factum, paragraph 9, or you don't have to take it up, um, uh, he says... She, being the complainant, testified, I felt a lot of guilt with Tanner and having to have charges pressed again. Uh, some evidence suggested that she'd spoken with the appellant's father about possibly dropping the charges. Now, are you saying, I maybe misheard you, but I think you took a position a little while ago, Mr. Silver, that she had definitely made up her mind. There was no question about it. She was going to have the charges withdrawn, and that was final. I don't read that at all. She was certainly, as I understand this case, entitled to ask the question. I don't know that there's any direct admissible evidence that says that she had finally come to a decision or that she couldn't have changed her mind if she had. So I think we have to look at it from that perspective as opposed to uh, your client was simply just reinforcing that which she had already firmly and completely made a decision about doing so. If I understand your question, Justice Moldaver, it appears to me from a review of the uh, excerpts of the transcript that the complainant uh, had contacted the appellant's father. The appellant testified. Where is it in the evidence? I apologize for interrupting. Where does she yes. say directly, I had made a final decision. I wanted these charges withdrawn. I wasn't going to change my mind. And, and all it required was just going to, you know, to a crown or whatever and, and sort of finalizing the whole thing. Where is that in the evidence? I'm not suggesting that it is in the evidence. No, okay, in fact, unfortunately, I'm sorry, Justice Muldeber. Unfortunately, the question was never put to the complainant by either the Crown or Defence Counsel. However, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately Defence Counsel didn't do it. No, uh, we, and that's why I said originally that it is an imperfect record. But I can draw some comfort from the transcript, which uh, you can certainly find at uh, volume two of the appellant's record, page 35, line 37. Question, how long was the conversation he had with you about the outstanding charges? Answer, I'd say half an hour, maybe. This is by the Crown. Question, do you recall how he left it with you? Answer, I think I said I would look into it and that I would do what I could. Question, do you recall what, if anything, he asked you? Answer, if I cared about him, if I wanted these charges to go through, if I could imagine a future past all of this with him. Uh, certainly the complainant at the end of uh, the examination by the Crown indicates that 
and one can certainly infer from her answer at lines 40 to 41 of the transcript that she had contemplated withdrawing the charges and that she would look into it and see what she could do. There is no further discussion with the complainant in respect to withdrawal of charges or the accused uh, appellant advocating that she withdraw the charges. It is clear from the evidence of the appellant that, which was not rejected by the trial judge that you can find at page 66, where the appellant testifies, can you tell me more about that conversation in parentheses with the complainant? Answer, it was basically the same stuff over and over again. Her saying that she didn't want me in jail, she didn't want me charged. I said, well, I asked why she was doing it. The reason I asked her, or sorry, told her that the steps of going about dropping the charges was she ended up messaging my dad, saying that she wanted the charges dropped and the cops wouldn't let her. That was a Facebook message we were bringing forward. So the evidence which was not rejected by the trial judge included the evidence of the appellant, where he specifically says that the uh, information provided to the father was that she had wanted the charges dropped and did not know how to do that, considering that the police were not assisting. The appellant made inquiries according to his evidence, unfortunately attended at her residence, provided that information to her uh, as uh, uh, requested by her. There's nothing that suggests that he was uh, trying to dissuade her from testifying. And as I indicated, her evidence was at the end of the conversation, she said that she would contemplate or think about it and she would see what she could do. She there just was no wanted him out of there. Anything. She just wanted him out of there. She was, uh, because the trial judge accepted her evidence that she was frightened, she was scared, she felt intimidated, and then he proceeds to sexually abuse her. You know, her bottom line is she didn't want him there to begin with. And so I don't think you can just sort of say, oh, well, she had decided, yes, that she would go ahead with this. This is in the context of him going over there, unasked for, unwanted, you know, and, and, and to think that he apparently calls the police to find out how to do this, but didn't bother to sort of mention to the police whether it would be okay for him to go over to the house. I mean, you've got to look at the whole context of this. This is a domestic this is a case of domestic abuse. And now the person who has domestically abused her is at her doorstep doing what your friend points out is step three of Lavalie. So if you look at it in that context, which I think the trial judge did and the Court of Appeal did, that puts a very different perspective on the way you are quite ably trying to put your case forward. Well, with respect to the cycle of abuse that's uh, referred to in uh, Lavalie, a decision of this court, it was clear as well that in order to take into account that information, expert evidence would be required. Now, I'm not going to argue this point uh, at this time. I do say, however, that what transpires in this case, and, and it appears to be clear from the evidence of the original police officer, that a phone call was made originally 
to uh, the police with respect to the appellant obtaining his property and advising them that he was going to attend at the residence. He then testifies, and it does not appear that his evidence was rejected on this point either, that uh, he uh, cancels the police. He does attend at the residence. I agree that one must look at it in context, but the context is also uh, that there is a break in the causal chain between any discussion with respect to the charges and subsequent uh, conduct, which uh, Justice Moldaver, you point out quite aptly, is the 271 offense that occurs. What, what it appears as well from the complainant's evidence is that, yes, she does wish the appellant to leave the residence, and he ultimately does do that, uh, but that in order to get him out, uh, she also agrees uh, that she was going to do this fiction of the hug in the hallway, and then he's about to leave the residence. He leaves, he's on the step, and he tries to kiss her again. It, it, it's, the, the trial judge doesn't make it clear as to whether he finds a continuing 271 offense or which attempt to kiss is the 271 in this case. The, the attempt at the doorstep after the fiction of the hug and the, the walk in the hall, or whether it was the first attempt to kiss her in the bedroom. But what does appear is that there's, a, according to Justice Slatter as well, is that there's a causal break between any discussions with respect to withdrawing of the charges, the original charges, and what happens subsequently where he attempts to rekindle the relationship. This is after the discussion that the complainant has with the appellant, where she tells him, I still have feelings for you. Yes, I still like you, but I have to do what is in the best interests of myself and my children. Is so not, she has... Mr. Silver, may I ask, sorry to, to interrupt, on this question of a causal break or a continuum, on page 12 of the record, the, the um, reasons for judgment, line... 20, 28 to 30, the judge makes a connection between the 271 offense and the withdrawal of the char charges. His advances were unwanted and not consented to. She testified she felt pressured and uncomfortable as a result of them. In my view, his actions were part and parcel of his overarching goal to have her withdraw the charges. It's of a piece, is it not? It's all of a piece. He tried to prey on her affections for him in the, in the discussion for, uh, in respect of withdrawing the charges. And the, the, the conduct continued through the 271 offense, all with the same overarching goal for the trial judge. Thank you, Justice Kazarov. Uh, I would respectfully suggest that what the complainant was saying was responsive to the question of how she felt in respect of the 271 allegation when the, the appellant attempted to kiss her. So what she was saying, it was responsive to a question as opposed to a question of how did you feel when the appellant was discussing the the withdrawal of the charges. She doesn't say that she felt pressured by him in respect to that. 
And I would suggest that on the record that is before the court, the trial record, neither the Crown nor the defense make it clear as to what part she felt pressured. And granted that, as Justice Moldaver points out, one looks at it in context and you have to look at it and say, was this in fact a continuing transaction? Or was there a break in the causal chain, as Justice Slatter finds, and says that the attempt to provide the information in respect to the obstruct justice is separate and distinct from his attempt to rehabilitate the relationship that he had with the complainant? So that there's two different parts that you're looking at. Now, the trial judge says that I'm drawing an inference from that that says that his overarching goal was with respect to the obstruction of justice or to dissuade her from withdrawing the charge. But on the other hand, Justice Slatter finds that an equal inference can be drawn, that there was an attempt to rehabilitate the relationship separate and distinct. And I think you can draw comfort on that submission from the fact that the complainant herself says, when asked, uh, what did the accused uh, tell you? And she gives the three points of, uh, do you really want to proceed with the charge? But the most telling is the one that's the last one, which is... Uh, sounds to me, so, I, I'm, again, I'm interrupting you, it's very rude, but you said at the outset you were arguing a, um, on the correctness standard and a point of, a point of law, and now you're recharacterizing the evidence as it was found by the trial judge. I asked you about a finding of fact, and Justice Slattery didn't take the same view of the facts, but it strikes me that we're straying into palpable and overriding error now. No, but if there is an, it's submitted that if there is an error in respect to the inference which is drawn and its relationship to other corrupt means, whether or not it falls within the definition of other corrupt means, that becomes an error of law as opposed to an error of mixed law and fact. So it's, it's the characterization of the inference which is drawn, which is contrary to the evidence. As I was about to say, and I appreciate uh, your, your question and your comment, uh, but the third part of the, the, of the answer that is provided by the complainant is, after all is said and done, is there still a future for us? So he doesn't say, after all is said and done, if you withdraw the charge, is there a future? But He's saying, if you with, if is there a future for us if you withdraw the charge at all? So and I can think I, that's can what, I bring you back? I mean, you, you talk about the context and whether this finding was available, whether it was reasonable. What do we do with the context that he only gained entry to the home using, I won't use the word, well, fiction, if you will. He said that he was there to pick up his things. Uh, I'm looking at the trial judge's uh, uh, reasons. He was waiting for the police to arrive so he could retrieve some of his personal belongings. And she said, let him know, let her know when the police have arrived, close the door. He knocks again and uh, he gets in. uh, She lets him in. What do you do with that? You said it's not reasonable to conclude there were any corrupt means here because she initiated the uh, request to withdraw the charges. Uh, how does that fit into the, uh, given the context that Justice Moldaver has uh, set out, do we 
do we is that relevant at all to the final determination? The trial judge says that the attendance, um, uh, and you can find this at the record uh, page 10, line 12, it was in my view one of the, if not the primary reason, he knowingly and willfully breached the no contact condition of his recognizance and attended her residence. So the fact is that one reason, according to the trial judge, that he attended at the residence was for the purpose of discussing the withdrawal of the charge, being responsive to uh, the question that was posed to the appellant's father. Another reason that the trial judge finds is to recollect his property. And as noted earlier, it appears from the transcript that the property was in the kitchen waiting to be picked up, uh, pursuant I, to the I, evidence. I understand complaint. what you're saying, but I don't see how the fact that he had some other proper or legitimate purpose can wipe out if, if in fact, there is evidence that he committed this crime. I just don't see why the one excludes the other. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I probably shouldn't be taking you to the facts in any event, because as my colleague quite properly points out, we're looking at the legal conclusion and not re-arguing the facts. But in this context, the fact that he had some other purposes as well doesn't wipe out conduct that the trial judge found to be criminal. Thank you, Justice Karakatsanis. The trial judge finds that one reason for his attendance was to discuss the withdrawal of the charges. Another reason for his attendance was to collect his property. And it, what you had said originally was, in your original part of the question, was that he obtained entry by a ruse. That is only if, in fact, his attendance was solely for the purpose of discussing the withdrawal of the charges. But if his, if his purpose was equally to obtain his property, then there is no ruse. And quite frankly, he was convicted of the failures to comply with recognizance. There was never an issue and there were even no submissions really made on that point. So he was found guilty of that which he was guilty. The question then is whether as a matter of law, uh, that failure to comply with the recognizance informs of other corrupt means. And whether Silver. that is other corrupt means. Mr. Silver, in uh, paragraph 22 of your factum, you uh, refer to a concession uh, made by the Crown on appeal. And you say uh, that the Crown on appeal conceded that in order to make out a charge of attempting to obstruct justice, there must be something corrupt or illicit about the conduct of the appellant. Was the concession more precise as to the conduct of the appellant? I mean, was, it, was, was there something more specific in the concession made by the Crown? Ms. Serink argued the appeal before the uh, Alberta Court of Appeal, and I would invite her to answer that question for you. And in fact, she may have some further submissions, but I think it would be most appropriate to hear from her at this okay, point, bearing in mind the time that we have as well.
if you could allow Ms. Serink to answer that question, please. Yes, Ms. Yeah. Good morning. I just want to take you to the correct portion of the dissenting reasons where um, Justice Slatter speaks of the concession. I believe it's at the last part of paragraph 22. Uh, Justice Slatter says the Crown concedes that in order to make out a charge of attempting to obstruct justice, there must be something corrupt or illicit about the conduct of the accused. And so that was what was specifically discussed at the oral hearing uh, before the appeal court was whether if the father had communicated that information directly, would that have amounted to an obstruction of justice? Um, does that answer the question? When the, it's referred to the conduct of the accused, it was the conduct of the accused regarding uh, the information provided to uh, the complainant. Yes. Okay. And so um, just getting back to the point that um, my colleague was making, it's the breaches of uh, recognizance were never appealed. Those were conceded uh, at the pretty much at the trial level and also on appeal. Um, but it's really important to just not overly um, convict someone on the basis of that they're committing other criminal acts. And so what Justice Slatter was doing was looking at whether or not the conduct on this record actually made out the specific intent of obstructing justice. And so just with respect to um, Justice Moldaver's question earlier this morning, one of the things that's important to also appreciate is that factually what she wanted um, the evidence was a bit uh, slim in that regard. There weren't certain questions put to her, but it's really about also what the appellant believed to be the case. So when we're looking at corrupt means, um, was he tr truly trying to manipulate her or was he just speaking what he believed to be true? And so, um, that's why Justice Slatter looks at it and says, well, on this record, what we have here, you know, is somebody that clearly isn't getting the message uh, and is perhaps behaving in a criminal matter with respect to the recognizance and other activity, including the forced kiss. However, there is conduct that's really above that that is required uh, in order to meet the test of obstruction of justice. And so that's why, you know, we are talking a little bit about the facts because we're talking about the application of a legal test to the facts. Um, and it's not a very uh, perfect record uh, in this case. Those are those are my submissions. I will turn it over to my friend. Just just before you oh. do, uh, in terms of the record, was there any record that his statement the police were coming to to be there while he picked up his things? Was there anything in the evidence that that was true, that the police were on their way? Um, or did the police my, ever arrive? So. My um, understanding of the record is that he advised that they were they were coming, but then also told her later that he had um, had told them that they they weren't coming anymore. Like he had um, essentially 
advised her that he had called them off. So whether you're, you're correct that there is, um, you know, a quote unquote ruse in order to uh, get inside the uh, residence. And that is obviously aggravating with respect to the breaches of the recognizance. However, the whole um, interaction can't just be melded. And I, and I think that that's what my friend is doing with the cycle of violence. And I'll respond to those uh, submissions when I um, hear what he has to say. Can, can I just, just extend, you mentioned earlier about trying to manipulate her um, when he went over, not, not contenting himself with the exchange with the father, doing it directly himself. And I'm fixed on the line of the trial judgment picked up on by the majority of the Court of Appeal, uh, page 10, line 23. By attempting to dissuade her from proceeding with the matter, and this is the key, by trying to prey on her affections for him. And I'm wondering if the manipulation for the judge was there. It's not just um, appealing to her affections. It's preying on them. That is to say, um, pointing to her vulnerability, making her a victim, wrapped up in this previously abusive relationship. I'm wondering if the manipulation can be seen there. Well, and just to be clear, the 271 offense doesn't happen until after this. So prior to this was the criminal harassment. Um, when we talk about abuse, that's a, it's a form of abuse, but it's a different uh, form. But what I would say is that the, the judge does say by trying to prey on her affections for him, uh, when we look at other corrupt means, uh, Justice Slatter takes a very positional uh, point, and he says, you know, preying on emotions or um, appealing to emotions is not corrupt means. Uh, that might be um, perhaps... There's, my point is there's a distinction between appealing to emotion or affection and preying upon it. You're saying there's a distinction between preying and appealing? No, I understand what you're saying. Um, praying would be more along the lines of manipulating. Yes, and that's, what the, that's the word that the trial judge used, and Justice Slatter preferred the expression in paragraph 30, appealing to emotion or affection, when he said that that does not fall within threats, bribes, or other corrupt means. I think that might be, have been, a, I say so respectfully, a mischaracterization of what the trial judge had found. And, sir, I will uh, hear what my friend has to say and then uh, provide a reply. All right, thank you very much. Um, we'll hear from the Crown now. Mr. Bard, please. Thank you, uh, Justices. I hope that uh, you can hear me. Is my audio working? Very good. Yes, it's, it's working. Thank you very much. I'm. Thank you. Um, so in the respondent's respectful submission, this really was a factual case. The judge made findings of fact that were reasonable and that were supported by the record. 
and you should accept those findings of fact. And if you do, then there's no basis to interfere with the legal conclusions that followed naturally from those facts. And uh, in my submission, it's necessary to review the entire context, the whole two hours approximately that the appellant was at the complainant's residence uh, as one transaction as the trial judge did to understand uh, why his actions do satisfy the text of corrupt means. Um, I'd like to address one point that my friend made uh, right at the outset uh, before, I, um, before I miss it. And this is uh, the definition of corrupt. My friend referred to Reynolds and that case is in uh, the condensed book. And the definition is to induce to act dishonestly, uh, which was the definition used in that case. And I'd like to take issue with that definition a little bit. Certainly it applied on the facts of that case where the offender was inducing the uh, victim to provide a false doctor's note. But the context of the actual section reads, and I'm reading, uh, this is in my condensed book at the first tab, 139 sub three sub A dissuade a person by threats, bribes, or other corrupt means. So the context of this language in my submission is that threats and bribes are corrupt means, but the section contemplates other kinds of corrupt means as well, which could satisfy uh, the test. So if I'm correct about that, that threats and bribes are corrupt means, uh, it's certainly possible to issue a threat in a way that's not dishonest. So uh, I submit based on a plain reading of the section, dishonesty is not required for corruption, although it certainly uh, could be a relevant factor as it obviously was in the Reynolds decision. So, but you say that uh, a threat is not necessarily dishonest. Uh, what about a bribe? Do you agree that uh, a bribe necessarily uh, implies dishonesty? I, I would say not necessarily. Hmm. Uh, let me give you, I don't want to get too, too far off track, but let me give you an example. Uh, one of the cases in my factum is R.V. Koch. This is a 1990 decision of the Alberta Court of Appeal. What happened in that case was um, there was an individual, a lawyer, was charged with shoplifting from Superstore. And Mr. Koch uh, was a longtime associate of this lawyer, and he decided to approach Superstore uh, to try to help out Mr., uh, the, the lawyer who, who was charged with the shoplifting. He approached Superstore and told them uh, that he would make a $20,000 donation to a charity of their choice in their name in exchange for them arranging to have the charges withdrawn. So it was not uh, necessarily secret or deceitful. It was a straight up offer to uh, do something in exchange for having the charges withdrawn. And based on, on that example, it, in my submission anyway, it's not necessarily uh, deceitful to offer a bribe, but it is corrupt in that context. And it does, it, Mr. Koch was convicted uh, on those facts. So the only reason I'm making these submissions is I wanted to take issue with my friend's comment that uh, dishonesty is essential 
to the offense here. Although you might find dishonesty in a variety of the things that he did, uh, it's not an essential element of uh, corrupt means. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to go to uh, what I take to be the main issue, which is uh, the dissenting judge's finding. He made a finding of fact that the appellant, uh, that the complainant initiated the discussion about dropping the charges. And uh, in my submission, there are several things wrong with this finding. First of all, the trial judge didn't find that this occurred. This finding was only made on appeal. And so the first problem is the only evidence in support of this was hearsay. Uh, the appellant testified that his father told him about this conversation that he had, and he was allowed to testify to that as part of the narrative to explain his motivation for doing what he did and to, to present his defense. But that evidence couldn't have been used for the truth or shouldn't have been used for the truth because no one, there was no evidence before the court to assess whether what the father told him was truthful. So right from the beginning, the finding that Justice Slatter in dissent made respectfully is not based on properly admissible evidence. But uh, regardless, if that finding uh, were accepted, I have tried to argue in my factum uh, that there's a very significant difference between initiating a discussion with a third party and initiating discussion with uh, the person who's charged with criminal harassment, with the appellant. Uh, speaking to a third party, uh, you know, the third party doesn't have a court order not to contact them. The third party, uh, the offender, you know, the complainant is not afraid of the father in this case. So to just gloss over the difference and say she initiated the conversation in my respectful submission is, is very wrong. And it neglects the reality that she is afraid of him so much so that she had to seek police protection. The other problem with that submission is that, or I should say that finding, is that even if she did uh, initiate the conversation, uh, that, that doesn't undermine the fact that obstruction could occur. And I'll just give you the example of an accomplice. If you imagine a case where uh, a person is charged with an offense and the Crown is planning to call an accomplice to give evidence about what they did, and the accomplice does not want to testify, and the accomplice might initiate a conversation with the accused and say, I don't want to have to go to court on this. Can you help me figure out a way so that I can get out of this uh, obligation to testify? And then they might have this illicit conversation trying to figure out a way to avoid uh, having to give evidence. That would still or could still constitute obstruction of justice. And the fact that the accomplice, quote, initiated the conversation would not change that. So for all those reasons, uh, the, dissenting, the dissenting finding was not a basis to overturn the conviction in my submission. Yeah, but isn't, isn't this, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure all of that played into Justice Slatter's reasoning, but I'm going to be a little more simple about this. Doesn't it come down to when the accused said, in effect, if you cared about me, you wouldn't proceed with this. And did that constitute another corrupt <clears throat> means in law? 
Well, that's, uh, that is my position. That's part of my position is that absolutely. He uh, preyed on her emotions. He recognized her vulnerability because his father, uh, he heard from his father that she was having possible second thoughts. He decided to take advantage of the situation, go approach her contrary to the court order that she had uh, sought uh, and then uh, force further contact on her that she didn't want. But, but, uh, but I guess that's, that's sort of how we get to the critical moment. Maybe it's determinative. Maybe the, the context that he shouldn't have been there is, 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 is decisive. Maybe the fact that uh, he, he treated her very badly and, and, and that frames what was said and, 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 and how it was received. Maybe, maybe that's determinative. But it seems to me in the end it comes down to when he puts that proposition to her, does that constitute other corrupt means? And, and I, I know your conclusion, but I'm not sure I know, I understand your reasoning other than it, maybe it comes down to this. In all of the circumstances as a matter of law, it constitutes other corrupt means. Those are my submissions. Well, that's not, uh, that's, that's quite right. My submission is it depends. So making that statement, if you cared about me, why are you doing this? Would you drop the charges? It might or might not be corrupt means. It depends on the context. It depends on all the circumstances in which those words are said and these acts are done. So it's, it's not, uh, certainly on this case, but in any case, uh, we should not isolate that particular, you know, that part of the transaction. And I concede there certainly could be some cases where appeals to uh, emotion do not satisfy the test for obstruction, can certainly imagine that situation, but that's not this case. And uh, what I do respectfully disagree with the dissent is that there should not be a rule of law that appeals to emotion never count as corrupt. So, so I hope that answers your question, Justice Rowe. Uh, my answer really is it depends, and the context is crucial for the trier of fact to assess whether uh, those words were corrupt in the context. And in this case, the trial judge found that they were. It and that seems was to me that goes, doesn't that go back to Justice Kassir's point? which is the word used was pray, manipulate, not appeal to. And, and it seems with respect that the dissenting judge twisted that to say he was there to appeal to her affections. That's what, not what he was there, according to a finding of the trial judge that was certainly open to the trial judge. Exactly. And that is what the dissent does throughout in my submission is attempt to reinterpret the record and uh, come to different conclusions than what the trial judge reached. And just to give you one other point that, that is uh, relevant in my submission, a paragraph, I believe it's paragraph 25, Justice Slatter uses this word idiotic to describe the actions of the offender. And this word kind of has connotations that Mr. Morrow didn't give it any thought. And if he'd given it a moment's thought, he never would have gone to her residence. And that's not really the way the trial judge viewed it. That's not really uh, accurate. There's uh, premeditation 
involved here because he learned this information according to his narrative from his father and he decided to take advantage of uh, the information he learned he attended her residence he uh, he attended then he went back again and then he went back again a third time and he went there with a plan with an overarching purpose to persuade her to drop the charges so to just dismiss this as some sort of idiocy really fails, I submit, to perceive the moral blameworthiness that attaches to these actions. I don't and think there's just, any question about the moral blameworthiness. I'm, the question here is about the criminal liability. The moral blameworthiness is a pretty easy one to resolve. But moral blameworthiness does not equal criminal liability. No. Uh, well, my, my point was that uh, the dissent recharacterizes facts and comes to different, assesses them differently uh, than the trial judge did. I mean, ultimately, the question that you're asking uh, regarding the appeals to emotion, uh, I, I'm not able to point to a case that says appeals to emotion are corrupt or may be corrupt, but I've tried to argue from uh, broader principles, including the cycle of violence and the lavally references, that uh, they may be, depending on the context, and certainly where they become uh, manipulative, uh, where they approach the praying, as the trial judge described them, they certainly can be. But the other important, the other essential finding of fact, which Justice Cazare uh, pointed out as well, is the judge's finding that the sexual assault was part and parcel of uh, the overarching purpose of persuading the complainant not to test, not to uh, participate in the process. So that finding, uh, putting aside any kind of preying on emotions, uh, the finding that his means of persuasion included sexually assaulting her, in my submission, has to qualify as corrupt means. And uh, if you, and if I'm right about that, then. Uh, the other aspects of the decision really fall away because that finding of fact on its own is decisive on the issue of whether he employed corrupt means of persuasion. Um, I mean, uh, there is one, there, 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 there is, there. <laughs> There is the old country and western song, don't give me long lines and keep your hands to yourself, uh, which sort of indicates an attitude on behalf of the singer that, you know, look, I'm not interested and you just kind of keep your distance, buddy. And uh, the person who would sing that line doesn't sound like they're vulnerable or subject to manipulation. Whereas I think you touched on something that I consider quite important here. And, 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 you, and which is the notion of manipulation and was this individual, the, the complainant, in a vulnerable state and, and did, the, did the accused seek to take advantage of that? And by that means, was it, a, by that avenue, was it a corrupt means? Because simply saying, you know, if you care about me, you wouldn't do this. That one I'm, I'm, I got a little more trouble with or the guy gets fresh and kisses her when he really shouldn't, which we all know is not acceptable. But again, in isolation, it doesn't seem to me that it's, it's the fatal moment uh, 
but if what we have is someone who's uh, perhaps afraid and confused and intimidated, ah, now that maybe is a little different. Well, I couldn't agree more. And this is uh, exactly the kind of assessment the trial judge is in a position to make. And uh, uh, the majority in the Alberta Court of Appeal relied on the Eastside decision and uh, the facts in that case were that um, Mr. Esau phoned the complainant and said something like, if you go through with this, you're going to look really stupid. And assessing whether that's obstruction, you know, normally on the face of it, it doesn't sound like obstruction. It doesn't sound like corrupt means. It just sounds like a, a relatively harmless statement. But the trial judge in that case uh, was present, of course, to hear the evidence. He was able to assess the nature of the relationship between the two people. And based on that assessment, he concluded that these words uttered uh, by the person to the victim uh, in the context that they were uttered did constitute obstruction. And the trial judge, uh, as I don't want to keep repeating this point, but the trial judge was the one to make that assessment. And uh, the trial judge here was the one to make the assessment here and it is available on the record. So uh, I wanted to just briefly respond to one paragraph in the dissent, uh, paragraph 28, where uh, the dissenting judge uh, says that he has identified palpable and overriding error. And of course that is the standard of review that's applicable to facts. And so I wanted to confront this head on because uh, the dissenting judge states that the trial judge, and I'm paraphrasing, but the trial judge equated persuading somebody not to go to court in response to a subpoena with persuading somebody to arrange for the withdrawal of the charges. And uh, Justice Slaughter said, this was a palpable and overriding error not supported by the record. And so first of all, Justice Slatter in my submission is being unfair to the trial judge here. The trial judge knew exactly what had happened. It, he well understood the facts. He knew that there was no trial date. There were no subpoenas issued uh, because the, the uh, charge had only been laid three days earlier. And the trial judge demonstrates his understanding of these facts earlier and the reasons. And so to simply take this one sentence out of context, it really, uh, and then find that the trial judge committed palpable and overriding error by saying this is just not, not, not right. But then in addition, the Justice Slatter treats this error as being decisive in the sense that since there was no subpoena issued, since he wasn't telling her not to go to court in response to a subpoena, that distinguishes all these other precedents and I don't need to, uh, and therefore those cases, the principles from those cases don't apply. And in my submission, that also really is not sound reasoning because the purpose of this section of obstruction of justice is to protect the integrity of the justice system as a whole. We couldn't have trials unless we have witnesses who are willing to come to court and give evidence. But it's not enough to just protect witnesses uh, once they receive a subpoena. Uh, the whole purpose of the section would be, uh, would be, would fail if, uh, it was free to interfere with witnesses up until the point where they're served with a legal document. And we can see that from the wording of the section, which expressly states a legal proceeding 
uh, pardon me, a judicial proceeding existing or proposed. So the judicial proceeding need not even have been commenced yet uh, for obstruction to be possible. And so Justice Slaughter's distinction here in my submission, again, really misses the point and uh, fails to appreciate the importance of the section. So not only was he wrong that the judge made this error, but he was also wrong to find that this was a significant error if the judge had made it. Uh, the last point that I'll make subject to any questions is to uh, respond to something the dissent says at paragraph 30. So, and this is, and I should, I'm also responding to uh, my friend's emphasis of this point. Justice Slatter, in the last sentence, he says, any prospect of dropping the charges was derailed when the appellant turned the meeting away from the topic of dropping the charges and attempted to turn it into an attempt to rekindle their relationship, resulting in the sexual assault for which he was properly convicted. So Justice Slatter here is subtly, uh, once again, changing the finding of fact. The trial judge was of the view that the sexual assault was part and parcel of the overarching purpose. And for some reason, without finding any palpable and overriding error, the dissent here would change that finding and decide that these are two separate unrelated interactions. And uh, th that is not the role of an appellate court, uh, I respectfully submit. Uh, as I said, I think at the outset, we should accept the trial judge's findings. And uh, once those findings are accepted, uh, in the context of this case, it follows as a matter of law that a conviction was proper. So uh, unless there are any questions, uh, those are my submissions. Just in uh, reply, uh, I note that um, there was a question about the entry into the residence and there's a discussion about that in volume one at page 38. And the Crown was asking how that made her feel once she determined that the police weren't there or weren't on their way. She said slightly, um, she said, were you concerned that they weren't there? She said slightly, I just didn't really have it on my mind. And so I think that, um, you know, the record is obviously imperfect, but when my friend says that Justice Slatter's decision is based on um, evidence that wasn't admissible, that's very uh, interesting argument in light of the fact that I argued ineffective assistance at the Court of Appeal and my friend argued, no, the the trial counsel was effective. This wasn't didn't meet the standard of miscarriage of justice. And then to now say, well, well, there's no leg to stand on with respect to the evidentiary record. I mean, that's not very fair to the appellant. Um, and just with respect to the preying on emotions paragraph and, and the part that Slatter has um, uh, reproduced in his dissent, if you look at that closely, the judge seems to be really the trial judge is really concerned with the benefit portion of the um, 
in interfering with justice, who receives the benefit, and that's just wrong. And so when he then ties that to the conclusion of uh, dissuading from giving evidence, that that's wrong. And so while he didn't pick through and find uh, portions of the trial judge's reasons that maybe could be considered to be applying something that is along the lines of uh, the appropriate test. He's saying, no, he's applied the test wrong. He he hasn't even, uh, he's, he says on one hand, he's accepted the uncontradicted evidence of the appellant. And then on the other, he's making this finding about preying on her emotions. And what I think we really have to look at is the immaturity of these individuals, the pinky swear, the walking towards each other down the hallway. There's elements of sophistication uh, that is being imported on these individuals that simply is not uh, borne out by the record. Um, and then I would just also say that um, if, uh, if Justice Slatter did state that appealing to emotion could never be corrupt means, I, I believe that he was speaking about this case, the appellant's case, but clearly there might be a scenario where appealing to emotions could be corrupt means, but in essence, the dissent was saying not on this record, not for this appellant. And so when we look at the specific intent of this offense, what Justice Slatter is saying, firstly, the trial judge didn't apply the right test, Second, when I look at applying the test, uh, this individual uh, does not make out that test. His conduct does not meet criminal intent uh, to interfere with justice on this record. Subject to the questions, those are the appellant submissions. So, Sarink, um, <clears throat> the court will rise now, but I would uh, ask uh, counsel to kindly stay put. Thank you. for the reasons of the majority of the Court of Appeal at paragraphs 16 and 17 of its judgment. As the majority observed, the record clearly supports the inference drawn by the trial judge that Mr. Morrow's conduct represented an attempt to dissuade the complainant by corrupt means from giving evidence. Mr. Morrow knew he had recently been charged with criminal harassment and that he was bound not to contact the complainant. Despite this, he attended her home uninvited and engaged her in a prolonged and distressing discussion about the process for withdrawing the charges and her, her reasons for bringing them. The complainant testified that the exchange made her feel, quotes, pressured to please, quotes, Mr. Morrow, and to get him out of the house. Shortly thereafter, Mr. Morrow sexually assaulted her, which served to exacerbate her concerns. On the basis of this evidence, it was open for the trial judge to find that Mr. Morrow's intention was to apply pressure on the complainant and ultimately to manipulate her into dropping the charges against him. The fact that Mr. Morrow may have also been motivated by a desire to rekindle his relationship with the complainant did not undermine the availability of this finding. There was also evidence that contradicted Mr. Morrow's position that he was simply responding to a request for information. The complainant made no such request to Mr. Morrow 
and she did not expect, nor was she interested in, the information he provided. In these circumstances, and having regard to the fact that survivors of domestic abuse are particularly vulnerable to acts of intimidation and manipulation, the trial judge's verdict was reasonable. There is no basis for appellate intervention. Justice Cote is dissenting, and I would now call upon my colleague uh, to please deliver her reasons. The wording of the charge required evidence that the appellant attempted to dissuade the complainant, quote, by threats, bribes, or other corrupt means from giving evidence, end of quote. There is no such evidence here. The appellant's behavior cannot, in this case, be characterized as a corrupt means within the meaning of Section 139.3 of the Criminal Code. Appeal to or preying on affection are means of persuasion, just like appealing to or preying on reason. Nothing in the circumstances of this case makes these means of persuasion corrupt. The trial judge erred in finding otherwise. His reliance on uh, the Queen against Crazy Boy was inapposite for two reasons. First, no finding of corrupt means was made in that case, as the wording of the charge did not require any. Second, Mr. Crazy Boy attempted to manipulate the complainant and incited her to adopt an illegal behavior by fleeing from her home so that she would not be brought before the court to give evidence. Here, the appellant merely provided information as to the process for withdrawing charges. As, as Justice Slater, I am of the view that the conviction for attempting to obstruct justice is not made out on this record and that the conviction is unreasonable. I would therefore allow the appeal and enter a verdict of acquittal. Thank you, Justice Cote, and thank you again to all counsel. The court uh, is adjourned now till tomorrow morning at 9.30. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.